Okay, we are live. Our first live for 2024. Happy New Year to everybody that is watching us on Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, YouTube, and theduran.locals.com. How is everyone doing in our Locals community? Great to have everyone with us on this new year. Hello to all our moderators. Zarael is in the house. Who else is with us, Zarael? It's just me and you, Zarael. All right. Okay, me and Zarael are moderating. I'm sure more moderators will jump in as the live stream progresses. Alexander Mercuris in London. How are you doing, Alexander? I'm very well. Very delighted to be here with Jim Jatras, person I've known of and have briefly known. Not, not We've never met directly, but you know we've had our exchanges for years and I've always been a tremendous admirer and res great respect for him. We're very, yeah, we're very honored and happy to have Jim Jatras join us. Jim, I have your uh, Twitter mm. profile as a link where people can find you. Is there anywhere else people can uh, can follow you? No, that's it. I'm at this point. I'm just a retired Virginia country gentleman, and my only uh, presence in the outside world is the X or Twitter feed at Jim Jatras. Mm, that's right. X X. I always say Twitter. It's X. Yes, I recommend everyone follow uh, Mr. Jim Jatras and Alexander. Mm -hmm. uh, I say now that we uh, have Jim with us, and he is an expert on the topics we are going to talk about. Mm -hmm. 2024, the presidential election campaign, I guess, officially starts. Mm. And we Is have, yes, yeah, so we have, yeah, we have Project Ukraine. And mm. uh, me and Jim were talking before we uh, we went live and Congress is going to be back in session, Alexander, in, I imagine, four, four to five days. Yeah. And uh, they're going to be talking about money to Project Ukraine and money mm. to the border and to, uh, to Israel. So, Alexander, let's uh, discuss all these things with Jim. Indeed, let's let's do so, because, of course, Jim has been an insider. You've worked in the in Washington. You've worked in the State Department. You've worked in all of these places. So you know a little bit about the atmosphere and the kind of people we're talking about. We've had all kinds of programs with others who have been grizzled veterans. But, Jim, you have always had your particular insight and your understanding of these people. And that's really what makes your um, observations so interesting and so important and so valuable. Now, I'm going to suggest that never, at least in my lifetime, not at any point in my lifetime, can I remember a year starting in the way that 2024 has done. Um, we have a war in Europe which is going badly wrong from an American point of view. We have a crisis in the Middle East, and i increasingly getting the sense that there's a huge amount of dissonance and uncertainty in Washington as to exactly what to do about it. I get the sense that there's argument, there's uh, bitter uh, ill feelings. And I think, Jim, you and I both remember previous American elections. I just remember as a child, the American election of 1968, for example, which is a very, very fraught one. The middle of the Vietnam War, the president had to pull out in the middle of the election. Um, presidential candidate Robert Kennedy was assassinated over the course of it. 
I want fears that this election cycle that we are in getting into in the United States is starting to look almost as problematic and as fraught as that one in 1968 was and every bit as uncertain. The political system was a lot more in control of things in 1968 than they are today. And to be straightforward about it, the people who were in charge at that time were much more solid people than the people we have now. I mean, you know, Lyndon Johnson, who was the president, was whatever you may think of him today, whatever criticisms people make of him, he was a serious man and a major figure in US politics for many, many years, whom people took very seriously. So very difficult, complex situation. And I think at the center of it, and I think this is where I'd like to start, we have Ukraine, this extraordinary, completely unnecessary war, result of years of misunderstandings in the West, um, antagonism towards the Russians, which has been growing year by year and getting worse. The war is going badly wrong. There's talk about starting negotiations with the Russians, but doesn't seem as if that's very convincing. Yeah. And you've just written a piece, which has appeared, by the way, in Izvestia, Russian newspaper, a storied Russian newspaper. Um, anyway, it's telling the Russians, be very, very careful if you do get any invitations to start negotiations. Um, it's, you know, a lot of us have had this sense of foreboding over the last few years that things are moving towards some sort of crescendo. And it's hard to escape the, the, the view that that's that somehow this year is going to be a pivotal year because all of these things we're talking about, whether it's Ukraine or whether it's the potential of an attack on Iran that uh, Alexander, you and Alex discussed yesterday, um, you know, all these things are coming to a head. And of course, the, the country that is central to all this isn't Ukraine. It's not Iran. It's the United States. And mm. and the drive that took place at the end of the first Cold War with the Soviet Union for American global hegemony. And that project of which we might say Ukraine, Iran, the Taiwan Strait, all the rest of that are subsets is uh, that those chickens are all coming home to roost, it seems. And they're going to be encapsulated in what almost certainly will be some kind of crisis over the presidential election in November of this year. It's hard to see how that can go up without a hitch. Uh, any way you look at it, whether they manage to disqualify Trump from the ballot, whether they resort to the kind of uh, tactics they, they used successfully in 2020. Uh, I, was, I was in Belgrade a year ago, right after the congressional elections, and the first question the media asked me was, so, Mr. Jatris, were these elections also stolen? So people outside the United States get it, an awful lot of the American people get it. But let's not forget how divided this country is. Uh, I think there are a lot of people, especially here in rural Virginia, where I live, and other, let's say, red areas and flyover country, that just assume that Trump is so popular and he's going to win and the blast of old Joe out of office and, and then all goodness and niceness will break out. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be quite that simple uh, from any, any number of angles. So uh, as you point out, I think you've set the stage very well. Uh, you know, Ukraine remains central if, as appears, some people like John Bolton uh, get their way and we have an attack on Iran. 
that's going to create a, a disaster that is going to make Ukraine look like a cakewalk. Uh, so, you know, and all these things are happening at once, and they're all, all going to become focused, I think, uh, by November of this year. Yeah. I should say that one of the points that you made in that article was that um, at the present time, the United States is incapable of conducting a negotiation over Ukraine. And I think you're absolutely right. And that any negotiation that the Rus that the Americans propose to the Russians is going to be, in effect, a trap. Now, I have been watching and reading Vladimir Putin's various statements over the last few weeks. Um, we've seen the change in the tide of the war that has happened since the failed offensive in the summer. And Putin has been becoming increasingly outspoken. And I think what is greatly underestimated in the West is how very angry and bitter and mistrustful towards the West Vladimir Putin feels. He is not going to take any proposal for negotiations at face value. And I think that the general sentiment in Moscow now is becoming very hardline indeed. I mean, they have been through Minsk. You discussed the Minsk agreement. They've become, they've seen endless numbers of negotiations with the West going all the way back to the end of the Cold War and beyond. And they're saying, you know, these people, we just cannot sit down and talk with them. I mean, is that your own sense, Jim? That's that's my growing sense, but I wish, Alexander, I were 100% convinced that that was mm. the case. I mean, let's remember, mm. for all of the demonization of uh, Vladimir mm. Putin as, as Adolf Hitler, he has been the pivotal guy in the in the Kremlin who has mm. wanted to have good relations mm. with the West. I think there have been other people in the Ru Russian establishment that saw through this, it seems, a lot sooner than he did. Mm. And I can understand now that he feels a sense of betrayal, that he's kicking himself and doing it in public, by the way, mm. public, public mea culpa about being uh, tricked by these people. At the same time, I think there are still a lot of people in the Russian establishment who are, how do I say this, you know, closet pro-Westerners and maybe not even not so closet, uh, who have interests in the West still, despite all the sanctions, and would like to see somehow if there's a way to go back to the status quo ante. Uh, you know, even people who pointed to that that fiasco in I think April of last year, when they had initialed agreement in uh, in Istanbul, except Boris Johnson went there and torpedoed it at the behest of the Americans to say, "Oh gosh, what a shame!" You know, uh, the war could have ended back then. Well, I, I think people think it could have ended back then, and there would have been any kind of agreement that the West would have held to. I think are being even naive to this day when they point back at that event. So I, I think you're probably right, but I don't know for sure. I think there's also a lot of concern that uh, if Russia is too uh, forthright in its victory in Ukraine, that that could somehow panic, trigger a panic reaction mm -hmm. on the part of people in the West, in Washington, in NATO, and they would mm -hmm. do something really stupid. I mean, maybe, that, maybe that's the flip side of assessing the kind of human materials mm -hmm. they're facing on the other side. So I, I don't know if they would fall mm. for it again. I think I'm increasingly of the opinion that they will not do so, mm. but I, I am not sure. And I, and yeah. I'll, look, it's all, and I'll send out Alexander, 
there's only about five men in the Kremlin who really know what they want to do. Then what mm. knows don't talk and then what talks don't know. Yeah. And, uh, and at the end of the day, there's one man who will decide. Absolutely. I would just say that we've, we've spoken to two people, Larry Johnson and Alistair Crook, who were recently in Moscow, and they talked with some very senior people there. I mean, we know which one of those people. We know who one of those people was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they appear to be taking a pretty hard line. And we also spoke on the record um, recently. We had an interview with Dmitry Polyansky, who is the dip deputy ambassador of Russia. And he seemed to be taking a, you know, clear hard line and was talking straightforwardly about achieving victory. And um, I can't quite believe that even though it is only a small group of people, and you're quite right, I mean, you know, the decision-making core in Moscow is a small one. But I would be very surprised if these people have not, are not getting steers <laughs> from the Kremlin, which are leading to le leading them to take, you know, to express, articulate this very hard line that we're hearing. And when Putin says that he was played, which he has actually said that, I mean, that is a pretty remarkable thing for a leader to say. I don't ever remember a leader saying that about himself. Yeah, this is a very good point. And another thing that he mm -hmm. said that it was very significant is mm -hmm. indicating clearly which areas of Ukraine are not of interest to Russia, mm -hmm. but, you know, essentially the far west, the areas that were part of the Austrian Empire before mm -hmm. World War One. that as far as Russia is concerned, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia. Um, and I think it's pretty clear to most people that the Russian speaking areas of the south and east, everything from Kharkov to uh, uh, Odessa, inclusive and pretty much everything uh, east of the Dnieper River naturally should be, uh, without without question, going to Russia. I think what people tend to forget about in that discussion is, and what about everything in between? What about all of the areas from, from Kiev to the far west, you know, Zhytomyr and places like this that are Ukrainian-speaking, uh, not not necessarily as pro-Russian as the East and South are, but on the other hand, are not like Lvov or Ivano-Frankivsk. And uh, whether it be a rump state there of some sort, uh, whether it, it would be safer for Russia to take those areas as well, which were part of the Russian Empire before 1914. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of gray area in between that even if Russia does secure a military victory, and by and by the way, look, you know, I, as much as anybody else, I want this war to stop. I want people to stop dying. I want Kiev to stop, and frankly, Washington to stop throwing bodies in there to be slaughtered like lambs. But uh, at the same time, uh, you don't want to have a solution or to this that ends up being not a solution, just sets the stage for a more destructive war mm. in the future. Yeah, I agree. Now, what will what do people in the U.S. understand about this? Do, do they understand that the Russians increasingly are in this kind of mood? Because I'm not sure that they do. Uh, I've been reading these articles that have been appearing. I mean, there was apparently Lavrov has said that he was contacted by somebody. They've been The Russians have been contacted by somebody and they've been told, you know, we need to have a discussion with someone in Europe. The, Lavrov, utterly dismissive of all of this. Do people in Washington understand this? And are they prepared for the fact that however this war ends, it is going to end in 
straightforwardly a debacle. I mean, it is impossible now to see any outcome. I cannot see any outcome which will not be a debacle for the United States. I forget who said it. It's hard to make somebody understand something when his his salary depends on his not understanding <coughs> it. When you talk about people in Washington, you're talking about people overwhelmingly who are in some sinecure where their their perks and their privileges depend on the the, the global American empire enterprise. Uh, and by the way, with respect to Russia, I think a lot of people misunderstand this as some sort of Cold War uh, hangover. Oh, the commies are still there. We have to oppose them. Look, you know, I was at the Soviet desk at the State Department. I was I was back in the Reagan administration. Uh, I was one of the few people who was actually known as an anti-communist in those days. I mean, the sense in those days was that Communism among the bureaucracy, among the establishment, was really sort of a good thing about Russia in those days. At least it was a progressive, secular ideology, uh, and people we can sort of get along with, although they're Russians, that still makes them bad. When communism ended, you'll notice that that, that made Washington far more anti-Russian than they had been during the Cold War. I mean, Brezhnev, Khrushchev, not even Stalin were ever demonized the way Vladimir Putin was demonized. Here we gave them this wonderful Western ideology and they messed it all up and then threw it away. I mean, what do you do with such people? So uh, th this this uh, almost zoological and uh, Russophobia that you see coming out of Washington is still unfortunately this, the the go-to frame of mind in the, in the uh, Washington political class on both sides of the aisle. And by the way, I think Alex and Alexander, you did a great job yesterday of discussing some of the distinctions among that class that they're not all neoconservatives, you know, some are liberal interventionists, some are what they call the Vulcans who are water carriers for the military industry. Somebody like John Bolton is not really a neocon. He's more of a, you know, more, more Cecil John Rhodes than he is Leon Trotsky. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at his ideological roots. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't, I think they understand it's coming, but they can't admit it to themselves. And, and more mm -hmm. importantly, they don't have the freedom within the, the, the matrix in which they operate to actually change course. They're like a big dumb dinosaur that even if they realize something, there's simply no way to turn it. So they will come up with these this chaff they'll throw into the into the air to try to deflect things. Or well, maybe we could talk. Maybe we're really, maybe we could redefine what victory is, but that's all they can really do. Yeah, because what are they going to do then? I mean, we, Congress is, um, you've both been discussing, Alex and you have been discussing, is about to meet uh, fairly soon. There is this huge appropriation for Ukraine, 61 billion dollars for Ukraine. This is a failing enterprise. Um, there is now a shortage of ammunition, shells, there's a shortage of missiles, the tanks are not working. The Germans are admitting that the tanks that have been supplied to Ukraine are not working. The French uh, guns, they're not working either, apparently. Are we going to send more good money after bad money? I mean, there's so many other problems in the United States. I was reading um, a, a um, representative from the House of Representatives who's just been to the border. He says the situation there is completely out of control. Are they nonetheless <clears throat> going to throw? more money to Ukraine. The Russians, by the way, assume that they will. But what are they going to do? <laughs> A short answer, of course, is yes. You know, the speaker, Mike Johnson, was down at the border recently, and you've been seeing more and more things, even, even liberal media, 
like the New York Times saying that uh, there's a real crisis in our cities with all these migrants coming in. Uh, it's even now permissible for people on the left to say that this is a problem. And I don't take this as accidental. I mean, uh, nothing appears in these media, call me cynical, but nothing appears in these media without there being a reason. So I think they're preparing themselves to come up with some kind of deal on funding for the border that will then allow the House to provide money for Ukraine. Maybe it won't be 60 billion. Maybe it will be. I mean, after all, it's just money. It's just, they put it on my tab. It's $34 trillion already. What difference does it make? Uh, so they will come up with the money. We also have to remember that uh, Israel has a preemptive claim on anything to do with the military or, or federal spending. And the fact is that no matter how much money they give to Ukraine, it's not gonna make much difference at this point. The men, the men are not there. The, the weapons are not there. The ammunition is not there. Sure, they can pay salaries in Ukraine for a while longer, but that's not going to save the regime in Kiev. Mm. What about this idea of seizing the Russian assets? Now, this is all over the place here in the media in Britain. There's been another piece about this, opposing it, by the way, in the Financial Times today. There's clearly a debate going on. Um, are they going to do that? I mean, if they can't get this money from Congress, will they do that instead? Because increasingly that's what's being spoken about. And if they do get the money from Congress, will they do it anyway? Um, the article, by the way, just to say in the, in the Financial Times says, if you do this, you are engaging in an act of war and you are eroding the boundary between war and peace. Because this is such a clear act of war that... Uh, how do you justify it and say that you're not at war? I, I, th I think the question of being at war is of less concern to these people. That is the mm -hmm. question of does this hasten the run on the on confidence of the United States as the, 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 the center of the world financial system? I mean, that's why, I, at least last time I heard, maybe that's changed. Even the Treasury Department here was skeptical of the whole concept. Because, you know, what does that say to the rest of the world, to the Middle East, to the Far East and uh, Latin America, everybody that you can't trust these people with your money? And uh, how, how I think that just will accelerate the erosion of the United States and of the U.S. dollar as the, the centerpiece of, of the global financial system. I think that's much more concern than whether that signals that we're really at war with Russia, because after all, as everybody knows, we are. And uh, so I, I think it could happen. I, if I had to guess, it probably won't happen because it's much easier to just come up with, you know, however many billion dollars of funding money from uh, funding in Congress, because mm. those numbers are all fictional anyway. Yeah. Let's turn, let's let's move it to the Middle East, because, um, you know, a couple of days ago, Alex and I were saying I was saying perhaps more than Alex was saying. Alex, I think, was more skeptical than me. But I, I said, look, actually. We're starting to see things looking like they're starting to get calmer. The Israelis are pulling out of Gaza. <laughs> the Gerald Ford is being uh, brought back to the United States. Alex then came back and said, well, what will the neocons think of that? And I said, they'll push back. And my goodness, what have we seen since we've had an assassination in Beirut? We've had a bomb attack, a major bomb attack in Tehran. Um, we've now had today, at least I was reading it today, this joint statement about the Red Sea, warning the Houthis. And, you know, that statement, which, you know, the United States has signed off on and some of its allies have um, signed off on it. It actually contains the word warning, warning the Houthis. This is a warning to the Houthis. 
So are we going to see military action by the Western powers in the Middle East over the next couple of days? What do you think are the chances of that? I don't know if it'll be over the next couple of days, but I think things are certainly trending in that direction. And I think they all point toward Iran. Uh, you know, we also have the, the uh, Israelis giving the uh, having given the, uh, Hezbollah uh, a, an ultimatum about withdrawing their forces north of the Litani River, you know, back you know, 20 miles or whatever it is. Uh, you, you'd think the Israelis, with their hands full in Gaza, would want to keep the north as calm as possible. Instead, they seem to be provoking uh, a, a heat, heating up of that front as well. Um, and uh, and I, I think, as you, you all had discussed earlier, uh, I think there's some people in Washington who feel that it's now or never to go ha have at it with the Iranians. And uh, maybe the Houthis, Hezbollah, uh, Syria, Iraq, other places where things are also heating up, uh, they, all, they all have one nexus from the, the, the point of view of people of, of this mind, and that is Iran. Let's go after the Iranians. And I, and I think that very well could be in the cards. How that will happen in the next few days, I'm, I'm not so sure. I think some other pieces need to fall in place first. Mm. I mean, we've had lots of wars in the Middle East since, well, 1991, I suppose, when the first um, uh, US-Iraq war happened. And the outcome of these wars in aggregate has not been good. I and mean, why do people think that starting another one in the Middle East is going to make the position of the United States better? Surely the situation now is more dangerous and precarious than it's ever been. I mean, is this not something that people talk about in Washington? I mean, are there likely to be any voices of restraint here? There will be some voices of restraint, but I, I, I mm. let me put it this way. As you know, nobody has ever been held accountable for any of those fiascos. Mm. And as I say, the big dumb dinosaur can only move in the direction that his inertia takes him. Uh, even if there are voices of restraint or even misgivings about it, mm. I don't know that it will necessarily cause a change in course. And there are some of them that are of the opinion, by the way, and I'm not sure this is true, but have the view that these things are not ever meant to succeed. It's the empire of chaos. They're just meant to disrupt and destroy. And if they have effect, well, they're doing they're they're doing what they're intended to do. I don't know that that's the case, but there is that point of view. I mean, that was certainly not the case in the 1980s when you were at the Soviet desk in Ronald Reagan's time. I mean, whatever you think about Reagan, he knew when to stop. I mean, he pulled the troops out of Lebanon, as I remember, after the bomb attacks. On the marines there um he knew he had control of his diplomacy or at least the administration did at that time i mean do you get the sense that the administration today is in control of its own diplomacy because i don't and, and we say the administration today who are we talking about the cardboard cutout in the white house are we talking about um, mental and uh, moral midgets like like blinken i mean uh, you know it's it's sullivan it's you know you know, again, you've discussed on your program the kind of uh, talent, if you want to call it that, that are running our policy. But given that the policy itself is so bad, even if you had Talleyrand and Metternich as our top lip diplomats, it still could not be a success because it's a policy that simply does not make any sense. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and, and again, I, I just don't see any way out of that. And, and unfortunately, as you know, as we're observing what we're going to get to the election, I don't mm. see that changing. In other words, I I, mm. I think we're on on a, on a on a kind of a flight path 
to disaster that simply cannot be avoided because of the human materials involved. Yeah, I mean, and that brings us indeed exactly back to the election, because I mentioned the 1968 election. The 1968 election was as fraught as it was because of the war that was being fought at that time in Vietnam. I mean, there were many other things going on. There was the civil rights movement, but the civil rights movement itself got involved at some level with the war in Vietnam because people like uh, Dr. King came out in opposition to the war, for example. And we saw the huge tensions there. But the tensions this time are of an entirely different order of magnitude. Now, I read the British media every day and the British media is an outlier of the American liberal media. What I tend to read in the British media is what people in the Washington Post and the New York Times are thinking and eventually will take to writing. And I am becoming very, very concerned because the way they are talking about the leading candidate for the Republican nomination is becoming completely irrational. It's taken as read that if Trump is elected president of the United States in November, then what they call American democracy ends. And when you talk in that kind of way, when you start explaining things to yourself in that kind of way, what are you going to, I mean, the, the urgency of preventing that event in your own mind must become overriding. If the stakes are so high, where do you stop? And we see all of these court cases, we see all of these legal actions underway, and I mean, we're going to have protests, we're going to have all kinds of things. And of course, if the wars are going wrong, and the crisis deepens, the sense of crisis deepens, then the urgency will increase. I mean, is that also your sense? You know, I'm just old enough to vaguely remember the 1960 election, but mm. the election that comes to mind for me is not 1960, it's 1860. Yeah. Uh, in terms of how divided this country is and how much of a crunch uh, we can expect uh, when the November, November approaches. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the, the people who really call the shots simply cannot allow Trump to be reelected under any circumstances. Mm. And the simplest way to do that is to keep them off him off the ballot in some of the key states. I mean, so far we've seen Colorado and Maine do that. I think that there are unfairly weak legal and constitutional grounds. As you've mentioned, I, I think the chances that the Supreme Court will overturn that are quite good. But let's remember, he hasn't been convicted of anything yet. And uh, that there's multiple cases against him. I think it's virtually certain he will be convicted of something and probably in more than one case that will change the lay of the land. Remember, we don't have a single national election. It's very hard for the Supreme Court to give a kind of a blanket decision that would cover all of the possible ways mm. in which he could be disqualified in any number of states. And, and, and just to take an example, my, my native state of Pennsylvania, if he's kept off the ballot in Pennsylvania, the election is over right there, right there, because numerically it's virtually impossible for him to win. So I think that's still plan A to keep him off the ballot. If that fails, uh, there's always plan B, which is to go back to what they did in 2020. None of those things about ballot harvesting and and uh, and uh, mail-in ballots and all the rest of that 
chicanery have been have been remedied since then. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and let's remember, you know, as, as much as, as I say, people in flyover country may think of Trump as the orange savior, there's another part of the country that's almost as large, if not larger, that considers him the orange uh, Hitler. And uh, so um, I, I don't see any way we get through November that we have a nice calm illusion that the, <laughs> the losing side concedes. And uh, what that looks like, I don't know. I, I think the chances of disorder are much greater, actually, if Trump were to win by some miracle, because it, I think it'll make uh, 2020 and Antifa and BLM riots look like child's play. If Trump loses, um, I don't expect his followers to take to the streets. They know the people who support him tend to be very, very law-abiding citizens, not not the insurrectionists that they're made out to be by the media. But one, one never knows. I think we're getting close to that mm. 1860 mm. kind of atmosphere in this country, you know, cold civil war. Just Google it. United States cold civil war. Mm. And uh, we've been in that mode for some time. I, I don't know what could, could trigger that cold going hot. I mean, this is the thing, because, of course, America in elections, uh, elections have generally been a stabilizing force in America. I mean, it, 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 it's enabled conflicts to play out in a legal and constitutional way and that has been one of the great secrets of american political stability which is something that everywhere in the world else outside the united states people have envied they've looked up to this now as you rightly say there have been situations there's been there was one specific situation in the 1860s, when, on the contrary, an election led to a civil war. And the kind of things that we're hearing, we're talking about now, preventing a candidate supported by half the population of America from landing, you know, running in an election. I'm not going to say it's going to end in a civil war. But this is a republic living very dangerously, or <laughs> so it seems to me. I mean, you know, um, what is the problem with letting the election play out? And if Donald Trump wins, where well, he was president before, and what were the disasters? I mean, what did he do <laughs> which was so dangerous, which justifies all of these things that have been said about him? You know, just, just as uh, the Gaza war has become existential for both sides. I would say this election is becoming existential for both sides as well. I mean, look, in 1861, Americans, both North and South, they pray to the same God, they read the same Bible, they honor the same founding fathers, they claim fidelity to the same principles of government. Today, Americans don't even agree on what our pronouns are or what a woman is. I mean, this is this is essentially identity politics on steroids, for both sides. And so you're looking at both sides, viewing the other, essentially not as misguided fellow countrymen who have different opinions, but as as, as evil uh, incarnate. And mm. uh, I don't see how you reconcile that simply through ballots, which will be contested anyway. And then you take this mm. back to the international situation, just as the mm. future of the Soviet Union was tied to the whole global communist movement that the stability of, and I will, I'll call it this, the regime in Washington is tied to the the global American uh, empire, uh, the global American mm. enterprise. And as that comes crashing down, and I think it is crashing down, that's going to c- have shockwaves 
that reverberate back into a country that is already becoming increasingly unstable and is mm. about to hit a, a point where that instability cannot be hidden. Uh, so that's why I, I'm of the opinion that for better or worse, and I think it's going to be worse, we're going to go through something similar to what the Soviet Union went through in the 1990s. And it's not going to be a pretty picture. It's going to mm. affect the entire globe and and also, obviously, people here in the United States. Uh, who was it? I think it was uh, Elder Ignatius of uh, Harbin who said back in the 1930s, what began in Russia will end in America, that the, mm. the drama of the 20th century now into the 21st century that uh, that started with the collapse of the Russian Empire is going to have similar effects here in the United States because, you know, if you look at the, the window of history, this has been a very short period of time yeah. that we're talking about that somehow the, the disorders that began in 1914 may come to their culmination now uh, here with the United States as the epicenter. I mean, I find that an absolutely terrifying prospect. I mean, for me, the United States has been one of the major single stable factors all my life. Uh, a situation of crisis such as you describe in the United States, I mean, is almost unimaginable to me. And yet every day, as I said, I go to the British media, I look at the American media as well, and I see these things being said, which once upon a time I would have considered unimaginable. I mean, the things that are being written about Donald Trump, I would once have considered unimaginable in the United States. And I am very, very worried indeed that you are correct. Now, we are both people of Greek origin. You're presumably, I suspect, like I am, familiar with classical history. You know about stasis that can happen mm -hmm. in states. We are probably both familiar with the events that led to the collapse of the Roman Republic, a political system every bit as stable and one which had existed for much longer than the American Republic had done, has done. And we know that these things can happen to a country. I, I, don't, I don't know if the world is ready for this, uh, this trifecta of Hellenic brilliance here, but uh, it's, yeah. um, the, the United States as a stabilizing force, unfortunately, I think ended with the Cold War in 1991, yeah. that what it did was with the absence of a, of a, of a powerful uh, opposing entity to keep it in check, that unbeknownst to most Americans, the, the, the levers of power in Washington had devolved into the hands of some very unstable people who were then empowered to do whatever they wanted to do with no restraint uh, after 1991 in the Balkans and the Middle East and so forth. And uh, that, that, um, that restraining forced turned into a kind of a serial arsonist instead. And now yeah. we're getting to the culmination of that. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it's sad. You know, that, look, we're talking about my country here. I hate mm. to see it in this condition, but uh, it is what it is. I, I almost feel like somebody who was a, a patriot in the Soviet Union, a Russian or a Georgian, whatever he might have been, watching what his country had turned into. And then luckily, at the end of the day, seeing it reemerge. And, and yeah. rather surprisingly, I hope some kind of a normal America can reemerge out of this, but I don't see it happening through normal electoral or constitutional yeah. means, given yeah. that the crisis we're in. Sometimes, sometimes, and this is a tragic thing to say, you have to go through the crisis yeah. in order to come out the other end. Well, Jim Jatras, I, I, this is where I'm going to stop. I'm going to hand over to Alex now. Um, and um, Alex, over to you. Mm -hmm. 
Jim, you have time for a couple of questions that people I certainly have. do. All right. From Brother Brovet, please ask Jim about how Patriarch Bartholomew was blackmailed over embezzled the 9-11 shrine funds into creating the biggest schism in the church in a thousand years. Well, I think if people Google my name and those those words, they will find what I've written on that topic. <clears throat> I think that's just one piece of a much bigger puzzle that goes back again about a century to, to sort of the events after World War One and the the collapse of the Russian Empire, the uh, the failure of the Greek expedition in Asia Minor. I mean, the the church politics uh, are, are very complex in the Orthodox Church. We can't explain them all now, but unfortunately, especially since 1948 the Thanar has been essentially a puppet of the American government. And that comes with all, all of the, uh, the disabilities that that entails. Hmm. Alex uh, Shirazi asks, good day, gentlemen. Would Putin help Iran directly or indirectly in the war scenario against the United States and how? I, I think indirectly. I, in the same way, let's be honest, that Iran and China are indirectly helping Russia in their war in Ukraine. They're not going to get directly involved. It's not a, a formal military alliance of, of the sort that NATO is, but uh, I think they will will make, they will want to make sure that, that Russians will want to make sure that Iran does not lose. Right. Sopi Ork asks, question for Jim. Are there any real diplomats left in the U.S. State Department? What is the solution to reform this seemingly broken organization? Uh, the short answer is probably not, but if they are, it wouldn't make any difference. Uh, mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, it's it, we're beyond whether the talents of an individual diplomat can make much difference. I mean, there were there were people even in my day when I was at the State Department. I was in the uh, office of the Undersecretary uh, for Political Affairs. That was uh, that was uh, Lawrence Eagleburger, who was a, a very competent diplomat. Uh, and a lot of people didn't like him because well, diplomats sometimes do things that you're not other people don't approve of. But uh, nonetheless, there were competent people. I think there probably still are competent people. But the problem isn't so much the competent of the people, although most of them are in fact incompetent. It's the direction of policy that has been uh, has been normalized over over several decades now. And now we're like a, a hamster on a treadwheel who can't jump off. Uh, Tish M, question. So who benefits from the U.S. imploding in on itself? You know, in a way, nobody does. Um, even the countries like China and Russia that that uh, want, understand that we are a threat to their interests, don't necessarily, I, I think, want to see America collapse. I think they'd like to see us stop doing the, the stuff we've been doing. But an imploding America is not in every, anybody's interest. Uh, and certainly it's not in the interest of the American people. But, you know, what? sometimes when events get uh, get underway, uh, and nobody is really in control of them anymore. And one more for Jim Jatras. Thank you for having Jatras on. I hope you consider having Jay Dyer and Mark Packard on as well. Fantastic. All right. We, we will certainly have Jim Jatras again. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely have Jim Jatras Jay would be a good on. choice as well. Well, thank you. Thank Jay you, Jay Dyer. Yes. I appreciate it. Jay Dyer would be a great choice. Jim Jatras. We have all your information in the description box down below, your Twitter account to follow the great Jim Jatras. Thank you very much for joining mm. us. Thank you. Take care, Jim. Oh, he's gone. All right, Alexander. <laughs> yes. We have a few more questions that we'll answer. Yeah.
Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> We're still live, Alexander. We're still live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a nice, right. just fixed just as a bit. Anyway, let, let's let's do let's do the questions anyway. All right. Uh, just a few more questions, and we'll wrap up our first live yeah. stream for the yeah. year. OG Wallace. Can I just say Happy New Year to everybody? By the way, who is on this live stream? Uh, happy New Year to everyone, of course. And OG Wall says, "Good day and Happy New Year, 2024 to all." Thank you for that, OG. Well, Sanjeva, thank you for that super sticker. Thank you, Sanjeva. Let's see. Jimmy Neutron asks, do all of these people in government with ancestors from the Pale of Settlement a la Kagan family and Blinken explain this blood hostility towards Russians? There is historical enmity there. Oh, there is undoubtedly. But I mean, I, I think one must understand that the problems are not limited to just these people. I mean, if it was just one group of people, you could isolate them and you could explain and uh, uh, come to an explanation for it. Well, unfortunately, I mean, if you talk about Britain, I mean, Britain, deeply Russophobic political establishment, the kind of people who are amongst the most Russophobic people in Britain, are people who come from the old English landed families, the aristocracy, the bureaucracy, people who are in the middle class. They're not confined to one particular ethnicity. And the same is, in, is true in Germany. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it's a misconception to see it just in those terms. Ronald B. asks... Question, does the pervasiveness of the spook state, NIA, CIA, FBI, etc., invalidate the democratic nature of the country and put real power totally out of the hands of the people? You know, I think this is a very good question. And I think that it, it, it touches on actually a serious point because the American system was never intended to coexist with a permanent national security state. I mean, it, it, you can argue... In fact, I am absolutely sure that people like Alexander Hamilton and uh, um, certainly Madison, uh, James Madison and George Washington, probably too, would have said that this is incompatible with an American republic, that this is not how a republic is supposed to be. And um, I think the one has led to the other. We've seen the national security state, the deep state eventually subvert the entire system, the entire political system, and reshape it around itself. Sanjeva says, Russophobia is not limited to the USA. It's there even in Iranians. Russia's failure in soft power and inability to control narrative is equally to blame for Russophobia. This is profoundly... I mean, I've just talked about Britain. I mean, I've never understood, by the way, why the why so many in Britain is so hostile to Russia. But you're absolutely correct. And one of, the, one of the odd things is because Russia is a country which, in theory, should have a huge amount of soft power. I mean, if you ask people, in Britain, if you do polls in Britain, you find who is the most popular classical music composer. People always talk about Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky always, nearly always, tops the poll. If you ask people, um, you know, if, if you go to West End theatres in London, who is the most popular playwright? It's Chekhov. Apart from Shakespeare, it's Chekhov. And yet somehow there is this ability in Britain to somehow separate this Russian cultural achievement 
from Russia itself and to be incredibly hostile to the country as well. And the Russians themselves have never managed to break that and they've never really tried to. But you'll find Russophobia in many places and in Iran certainly it existed and it had a historical basis there. I mean, and I would suggest that you watch a program, if you haven't seen it already, that we did, Glenn Deason and I, on the Duran with Professor Syed Marandi of Tehran University, in which he talks about that very thing. And he says that that historic suspicion of Russia, which did exist in Iran, has now largely abated away. Jeff Bickford says, thanks for the honest discussion, getting easier to see through the propaganda. I was once told that one time that economic war precedes actual war. Yeah, well, this article in the Financial Times that I was talking about, which is written by somebody who is a sanctions specialist, by the way, from Cornell University. He, he actually says seizing Russian assets is an act of war. <laughs> if you do this, you are erasing the boundary between war and peace because it is so well established as an act of war to do a thing like this. Zariel says, to be honest, USA needs God back in their nation again. I personally would agree with that, yes. Thank you for that, Zariel. Sparky says, give Zelensky the EM-50 urban assault vehicle from Stripes, starring Bill Murray, undoubtedly it would insult, it would result in Putin's immediate and unconditional surrender. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, man. Great movie. How did you think of that one, Sparky Stripes? Uh, Katya Andrews, thank you for that super sticker. Tom says, Saint Grand Duchess Elizabeth Fedorovna, we need you today. Right, okay. This is, I think, somebody, a member of the uh, imperial family who was uh, martyred or murdered or mar murdered and martyred during the revolution. But um, I, 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 I must admit, I don't remember the details precisely. Yeah. Brother Brovet says, Jim is a wise elder to Orthodox Christians living close to the land in rural America. Thank you, yeah. Jim. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. We we should have Jim a lot more. In fact, Jim is amazing. He is, Jim amazing. is amazing. I've actually had the the honor of of meeting him in Athens, yeah. and he's just uh, he's yeah. a, he's an amazing person and just yeah. a great a great guy to sit down with and and have a beer. Mm. He's, he's amazing. Oh. So we will definitely have Jim on again. Uh, Raul yeah. Pinto says if Jim Chatras is right about the analogy of the U.S. collapse to the collapse of the Soviet Union in the nineteen mm. nineties, then imagine Israel's plight. <laughs> True enough. And one of the most extraordinary things that I've heard in the last couple of weeks, which was explained, said to us by a um, guest of the Durand, Alistair Crook, he said that way back, I think it was the early 1980s, he met an aide of the then Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. I think it was early 1990s. And this person was saying, you know, what we need to do is we need to wait for America to weaken. And then we will go ahead and we will do what we want to do on the Temple Mount and all of those things. And I mean, I, I've no doubt, by the way, that Alistair Crook was actually told that by an Israeli official. And how catastrophically misguided is that? 
because ultimately, which country provides the backstop for Israel itself? It is Israel. It is the United States. So from an Israeli point of view, the very last thing they should be looking for or wanting is a weakened America. Yeah. Uh, Angry Warhawk says, greetings and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Angry Warhawk. Great to have you with us. Tish M says, so then to Jim's answer, then this dispels conspiracy theorists that China is behind Biden's backdoor deals to trash the U.S. So then this is really bad management or has this been planned by whom? I don't think it's been planned by China. I don't think Chinese have that ability to control things in the United States, to be straightforward about this. I mean, Biden is deeply compromised by his dealings with China. We all know it. But I think the idea that the Chinese are able to micromanage him in that kind of way, I think that is impossible. Yeah. Salvatore says, please invite Abby Martin to your show. I am sure you would yeah. like what she has to say. An interesting person, actually. I've heard from her for a long time, but yes, why not? We, we'd love to have Abby Martin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If she would come on the show. That would be great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Russell Hall says the West's shift in focus from from away seeking objective truth to manipulating public opinion has coincided mm. with its decline across all fronts. Absolutely. You know, one of the most extraordinary things, again, uh, which I, you know, uh, Alex and I have been exchanging articles about this but um as things have started to go wrong in ukraine you've started to see articles appearing which are not you know about you know we must change the situation we must rethink our policies we must do this we must do that they actually straightforwardly say the important thing now is to flip the narrative <laughs> flip the narrative that is more important than dealing with the reality of the crisis in Ukraine or any of the other crises as well. It's all become about narrative manipulation. It is post-modernism, what started in the 1960s, and it has completely run out of control. Yeah, Sparky says, Javier Malay may be a globalist plant. Austerity he preaches doesn't work, and if he sells off Aspects of Argentina to global mega corporations, ostensibly to pay off debt. Argentina won't, won't get them back. I've come to exactly the same conclusion as you. I mean, I would put it quite that same way, but I, I've increasingly come to the view that Millet is not what he pretended to be. He's certainly no kind of libertarian, as far as I can say. I mean, what he is doing is he is reproducing the policies of the previous government, the, the one, not the, the government that he's defeated, but the one before that with uh, a President Macri, all the same people are being brought back into the government. The policies appear to be essentially the same ones. And they are taking you Argentina back into the sort of old style globalization uh, that we used that we saw before. Hmm. Sparky says if Malay isn't a globalist plant, he should hire economist Mark Blythe whom the U.S. pilfered from the U.K. I believe he has a handle on nation-state recovery economics. Oh, I know. I'm sure he... I mean, there's lots of things that Macri could do. You know, I, I mean, I've been somewhat sceptical of... Uh, sorry, Millet, not Macri. I've, I've been somewhat sceptical of Millet. But, you know, I mean, some of his ideas might even work, except he's not pursuing them. <laughs> he's doing completely different things. Yeah. Um, 
Candice State Lennox says, hi, thank you for all your work. As a person living in Britain, I am genuinely worried about British place in the new world order. What do you see Britain standing in near and long-term future? You know, this is your, this is a very painful and very difficult subject. I mean, I'm afraid you may very well be right. There's apparently been a report which talks about Britain facing a gloomy stagnation going forward. And I think, you know, that is actually a complacent view because countries don't just stagnate. If they are stagnating, then things start to break down. And you beginning to sense some of that happening in Britain today. I get to give an example, a very obvious example, anybody who lives in Britain can see this, which is the corruption, which when I first came to Britain in the 60s was public corruption was hardly existed. It is now very visible here. And I, I can't help but feel very gloomy about it. Now, in theory, we have a lot of things that ought to be make it possible for us to transform our situation. We're still a big country. We've got a lot of entrepreneurial drive. We've got good universities still. <laughs> they're not as good as they were, but they're still there. We've got lots of things. But we not only are we not using them, but our political class seems to be, one, united, and two, determined to stamp on anything that could shake the system as it has developed today. And it, it, it's very difficult to be optimistic, again, at least for the short term. Sam Whiskey says, has the fall of the Ottoman Empire still haunting the Middle East? Well, <laughs> I'm not going to get into the history of all of that. The, 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 the Ottoman Empire's collapse has uh, um, has never been, I mean, the system that the Ottomans created, whatever one might think of them, in the Middle East, in the Arab world, functioned stably for around 500 years, 400 years. And then it collapsed after the First World War. And the outsiders, the American, the British and the French came in and they rearranged everything. And I think they created a mess and we're dealing with that mess today. Now, where the Ottomans, what what the Ottomans, you know, what role the Ottomans had in all of that, I'm not sure. And certainly you're not going to find any solution to the problems of the Middle East today in Erdogan's Turkey. But um, we are still playing out with problems of Ottoman collapse in the Middle East. Of that, there is no doubt. Russell Hall says perhaps Russia's lack of concern for exercising soft power is not a mistake on their part, but the reason for their success in real terms. You know, there is a lot of truth to all of this in the sense that what the Russians tend to do, I mean, they're very, they're very practical and they do tend to focus on objective realities. And I think that, that is a, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, soft power, we rely on it so much in the West that we've neglected hard power, but hard power used intelligently. The Russians have focused very much on hard power and use it intelligently. So I think there's a lot of truth in what you've just said. Let's see here. I think we have a couple of more. Alexander, you know, our last live stream 
2023, there was one question from Tabernacle yeah. that came yeah. in right when I ended the stream. So we didn't right. get to answer that. So let me just yeah, um, give you that question right now. Yeah. And then we have one more question from Sparky. Uh, Tabernacle asked in 2023, what will the rest of the world do while the elections are ongoing? Can the fair world order make it? Yes, I think that this is the thing that's happening now, and we're increasingly seeing it. Countries around the world, Russia, obviously, China, to a great extent, India even. I mean, the Indians, we haven't been talking much about them, but uh, the Indian foreign minister, uh, uh, Jai Shankar, who is one of the most intelligent and able people in global diplomacy, he's just had a five-day five day visit in Moscow. And... So you see more and more countries coming together and they say, look, the situation in the U.S. is very, very volatile, very dangerous, just as Jim was saying. And what we've got to do is we've got to start working towards establishing systems, which mean that if as things go more and more wrong there, we can contain the damage. We can get by uh, and protect ourselves from these problems that not just in the United States, but in the collective West are being created. And I think we're going to see that accelerating trend right through 2024. Already the Saudis have bolted. They've gone to the other side. They've seen the mess that yeah. we're causing. And there will be other countries that will follow. This is the biggest news story. I mean, right yeah. there, you just said it. This is the biggest news story. I mean, mm. like the long-term big change that's happening is BRICS. Yeah. 2024, Saudi in BRICS, Iran in BRICS, UAE, Ethiopia, Egypt. And, and I mean, I think it's very simple what they're going to do. They have the energy. They have the commodities. They're going to create the payment system. Mm. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that that is the big story right yeah. there. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Ralph says, most excellent discussion. Thank you, gentlemen. And Sparky says, Trump endorsed Malay, but sadly for his good, Trump has a poor track record on whom he hires and whom he endorses. I agree with that, actually. I mean, uh, to be honest, I mean, I didn't know very much about Malay before he appeared. And I had thought for a time that this was, that he was what he appeared to be. But I'm increasingly coming around to the view that he is not. Yeah. Um, Mustafa Soleiman says, I like your content, but I need to balance it out with pro-West content. Who from neo neocon circles you would recommend me to keep in vision? Oh, I wouldn't recommend any particular person. I mean, that's an impossible thing. But if you want to get a, you know, the pure unadulterated uh, view of the neocons, you can go to one of two places. Well, you can go to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, <laughs> Foreign Affairs, Foreign CNN, Policy, the National Interest, MSNBC, MSNBC, all of those. I mean, there is no shortage of them. You can you can go to them. Uh, 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 they're all over the place. They are much uh, much more widely Telegraph, promoted. Times. Than Times, know, Sunday, times finance, Monday finance, times, Tuesday Times, times <laughs> Le Monde, El Pais, uh, 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 the <laughs> they're all over. Euro news. You, you have, you have, if I could say so, a a uh, embarrassment of choice. Yeah. But you know, our content. Just to just to end the the live stream, mm -hmm. Alexander, to get this question, our content is it's actually what we talk about is is saving the West. Yeah, I know, absolutely, yeah. This is I mean, completely true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't don't steal the 300 billion. 
No, no, yes. Don't remove Russia from SWIFT. Stop <coughs> the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Don't order, go to war with Iran. Yeah. I mean, all our content, at the end of the day, when you go through our content, if, yeah. if there were people in in the think tanks or in D.C. that were actually listening to our content, mm. I, I think, you know, the, the Biden White House or whatever administration would be in much better shape. Absolutely. Completely. That is completely true. Mom Alaska says, thank you, gentlemen, for all you do and Happy New Year. Absolutely. And Happy New Year to you. Mm -hmm. Some more questions. Build a better world with bricks from Sparky. Mm -hmm. Nick says, love your work. Thank you. Non-political question. What is the title of the big black book on the top shelf close to your door? It has been on my mind every time I see it. The big black book close Close to to your door. Alexander, I don't know which one you mean? If you mean the books at the end, I guess uh, uh, yeah. the very, very last one that is Pausanias's uh, um, description of the monuments of ancient Greece. <laughs> Just saying, um, Pausanias, um, in the second century AD, in the time of the Emperor Hadrian, wrote what you might call a, a tourist book which uh, for Roman travelers that were visiting Greece. And uh, he describes all the various locations in incredible detail. And one of the most moving things I have ever done, by the way, just to say, is if you go to um, Olympia, you will find there the statue of Hermes, Hermes, uh, the god by Praxiteles, one of the great sculptors. This is perhaps, in my opinion at least, the single greatest piece of sculpture in the world. And it was found in exactly the location where Pafsania said it would be. K1F8 says a tour of Alexander's bookshelf would be great content. Oh, absolutely. Well, it'd be interesting anyway. Maybe one day. Maybe we'll do one day. Maybe video, one yeah? day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one more. And this Teslanox says, would you agree that Russia's political system is not sustainable in long term due to much power concentrated in the president himself? What will happen well, to Russia if someone like Yeltsin came mm, into power again? This is actually, you're, you're, you're discussing something which a lot of Russians talk about. I mean, Russia, ever since the time of, you know, the 15th century, has been working towards trying to perfect its political system. And there's been lots of things that have been tried and there have been breakdowns and mistakes made. And it has depended an awful lot about on personalities. I'm going to actually make an optimistic point. The thing about Putin is not only has he engaged in state construction, he's obviously an exceptional individual, but he's engaged in state construction, but he's done this in a very legal institutional way. He has always avoided using force and coercion and violence. And I think we are closer now to achieving strong political institutions and stability in Russia than we have ever been in its uh, modern history. And G. Gypsy says, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. That's exactly, wasn't that George Washington? Or it sounds like George Washington, but I mean, that is exactly the spirit of the uh, founders of the United States and of the early policies of the American Republic. 
And it's a tragedy that it has been drawn away from that. Yeah. All right. That is everything. Thank you once again to Jim Chatras for joining us. His uh, Twitter profile is in the description box, and I will also have it as a pinned comment down below. Thank you to everyone that joined us on Rumble, Rockfin, Odyssey cut out. So I'm, I can't get back onto Odyssey. So I don't know if the stream was still playing on Odyssey mm. or not. Mm. I can't access Odyssey at the moment. But thank you if, uh, if everyone is watching on Odyssey. Thank you for joining us. And of course, vduran.locals.com and everyone on YouTube. Thank you for joining us. Ralph, thank you for that super sticker. Thank you, Reckless Abandon. Peter, thank you. Tish M, thank you. Zarael. Thank you. And I think uh, Reckless Abandon. Reckless mm. Abandon. And T. Jordan, mm. thank you very much to our moderators for everything that you do. You are the absolute best in the business. Mm -hmm. Alexander, any final thoughts before we start? No, it's a great, great live stream. First live stream for 2024. 2024, exactly as Jim said, is going to be an extraordinary year, and we're going to be covering it. And I predict that in the end, Things will come out well. It's my own view. <laughs> and we have one more question from Tabernak. Tabernak, I answered your question last live stream. During mm -hmm. this live stream, mm -hmm. right when we cut off, I got your question. But now we have got your question that we can answer during this live stream. Mm -hmm. So this is from Tabernak, and this is going to close out the show. Can Russia and North Korea deter the Asian proxies? Yes. <laughs> China... Uh, Russia, North Korea. Yeah, I think they can. I think I think that we're going to see an awful lot of tension. But I, I still believe that the, the ultimate disaster is going to be avoided. Mm. Ivan, thank you for that super sticker. All right, Alexander, that is the show. Mm. Take care, everybody.